Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John. My guest today has built multi-million dollar businesses, produced critically acclaimed documentaries, and an Emmy-winning TV show. He's invested millions in real estate and is semi-retired at age 43. Now he's sharing a lifetime of fiscal know-how via PlayLouder, a resource that helps individuals and business owners increase their net worth and plan better for their future. Welcome to the show, Joe DeSanto. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I appreciate it. I know I kind of went over a little bit of your background, but can you share a little bit more about your history? I was born in Rhode Island, went to college in Massachusetts. I actually was a photography major in college, so an art major essentially, but I was always interested in business and finance and things like that. My dad had a plumbing and heating business, which I didn't want to go into that, though I did work I did work for him a little bit in high school, early high school days. I think kind of from him owning a business and me, you know, you grow up in a family where there's a business, it, it kind of makes it seem doable. It doesn't seem like so daunting to start a business. But I kind of definitely wanted to do something with art and business. When that was going to happen and how and all that was not known at the end of college, but it was on my radar. And then the other thing I generally actually had interest in was real estate. I don't know why. Like, I always wanted to, like, buy a house as soon as I could. I like fixing houses up. I like making a cozy house. I like interior design and and designing interior architecture stuff. So those are my major goals after college is get my career going, maybe start a business and buy a house. Those are, like, initial steps. And I ended up buying the house at 28. I was in Los Angeles, so it was kind of pricey. That was 2004. And then started the business a couple of years later when I was about 30. Started it with the friends of mine that I had met at jobs that I had had along the way up until that point. And I found my way into the post-production business, which really was like a perfect marriage of my interests. Post-production is kind of like photography in motion, really. You do visual effects work, some moving images, you do editing, color correction, all sorts of creative work as part of the filmmaking process. And it's a great, fun business that, I mean, we built it up starting with the four of us to, to about over 30 full-time employees. And it would be up from there, depending on the projects we were doing. Like when we did that TV show that you mentioned, we probably had about 60 people that year. The companies in LA and post-production range anywhere from like four or five employees up to a hundred. So it could be a pretty small business, though. It was back before you could do an online business so easily. So to start it, you actually had to get a location and buy furniture. It did have a little bit of a barrier to entry, which luckily we, we were able to overcome. But it was, it was uh, as of the title of your podcast, it was pretty bootstrapped at the beginning. And we worked a lot of hours. But we just built it brick by brick, essentially. And we made as many good moves as we could. We did as much good work as we could. We mostly got new work from referrals and just over the years built it up. And when I left, it was, like I said, about 30 employees. And it'd been about 15 years later almost since, actually, I guess 13 years later since we opened the doors. But the reason we left is because it's a very demanding business. It was super fun for a long time, but then we decided to have a child and all of a sudden we were like wow 
man, kids, they bought a lot of your time as it turns out. <laughs> really, like, realize how much time. Like, you actually have to have eyes on your children, like, 24-7 or be paying someone to be watching them. You can't take your eyes off them. So it just became kind of hard to be the parents we wanted to be and also meet all the demands of being in the entertainment and advertising business and crazy hours and all that. So my wife and I came up with this crazy idea to just like blow up our life, tried to do it differently with the goal of working less, having less stress, being able to spend more time with our kid while he's young and he still thinks we're remotely interesting. <laughs> so, so we did it. It was hard to do. It was actually a couple year endeavor to figure out how to unwind what we had put together, kind of extricate ourselves and then find our way in this new thing. And part of that was we wanted to work less. We knew that. And, but luckily, because I had always been so into personal finance and investing and all that, it turned out we ended up being pretty well prepared to make this kind of change. We worked hard to save a lot. I worked really hard to understand investing and, and do a lot of real estate investing, funded our money. And we had put together a pretty decent, I guess you could say, retirement savings made up of cash and stocks, and most, but mostly real estate. And some of that was dishing off spendable money, positive cash flow, as they say. So we kind of saw that, well, with the amount of money our investments were generating, it wasn't as enough to not work because we're not particularly frugal people, to be honest with you. We like to spend money on things we want to spend money on. So, but it was enough where I could probably kind of work part-time and combine a part-time income with that money and then be living a lifestyle that we were happy with. So I call it being semi-retired because I don't need to work full-time. And we're also not particularly concerned about saving more money. Of course, I love saving money. And if I, if I can in a year, I will, because why not? But if we never saved any more money and just the amount of money we had grew, I'm pretty confident that 20 more years of growth in the markets or whatever, when it comes time to fully retire, we'll be pretty set. So that's the other thing that I mean when I say semi-retired. I'm not completely obsessed with the whole saving component. But I talk a lot about this in my website. To me, reaching the promised land, as I like to call it, or this kind of like ability to make these changes in your life and have control and all that. When I look back and really add it all up, there's what I call kind of three pillars to success. There is the personal finance pillar, which is literally tracking your income and expenses, having a budget, having a plan of how you're going to achieve your goals, and holding yourself accountable to that plan using computer software. Count your money and have a good understanding of your progress. But also there is the entrepreneurial or business-minded pillar. And that's kind of more like the income generating pillar. I found that being entrepreneurial, having a business really was the best solution to that area. And not only is because you potentially make more money and you have more control of your time, but as a business owner, you also are treated differently from a tax perspective and you get a lot more benefits often than if you're just a W-2 employee. That said, not all professions lend themselves to being a business owner. So I think you can also be entrepreneurial at work which is basically you really taking your career by the horns, making yourself indispensable at your workplace, 
then going in and asking for significant raises with the performance to back it up. And when you don't get what you need, being proactive and going to another job where you can increase your pay. I always say, and it's an old saying, the best defense is a good offense. And that is definitely true in the wealth building arena. And a lot of times doing the work, the personal finance work basically shows you that you need to make more money and you need to focus on that. And then the third pillar is investing. And basically you make more money, you do personal finance so you know that you are making more than you're spending and that that net difference, that net income is going into some sort of investment and your investments now will compound your money and grow your money while you're either sleeping or at your day job. So those three things working together are really going to propel you to getting where you want to go just period, but also more likely faster. So a lot of what my website is about is talking about all the different topics under those three pillars and how work together, essentially. Oh, I love that. And also when you brought up about savings and a lot of people focus on savings. And of course, it's important to have savings for emergency situations and things like that. But to focus more on taking that excess money and not just having it sit in savings, but invest it. Not many people that I've come across are really focusing on that. They're focusing more on savings, which again is important. But at a certain point, you got to take some of that savings. (laughs) Uh, And when I say savings to me, that's money mostly that is invested. Uh, mm. And a lot of people say, oh, you, got, you know, you got to have an emergency fund of like six months of cash, whatever. I'd rather have my emergency fund invested and then have a credit line off of my invested dollars to use in the case of an emergency rather than have that money just sitting in a savings account, losing to inflation and not growing. That's a good point. Uh, so there, there are ways to have your emergency fund be there without necessarily being in cash and also not requiring you to do a flash sale of your stocks at like a bad time. You can use debt as a way to get that thing. Though I will say having a couple months of expenses just in cash, super immediate emergency kind of stuff, I'm for six months though. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> I'd also rather you take your, if you have a big credit card debt, I'd rather you take your emergency fund and pay off your credit card, save on the interest, because you can go use your credit card in emergency later <laughs> if you need to. So why carry an emergency fund savings account and then a credit card balance and just pay useless interest when you can pay the credit card down and still have it ready to use whenever you have an emergency? So what would be the different investment options that you could have like a credit line associated with it to where if you need cash quickly for whatever reason, you wouldn't have to just go to the bank and get literal cash out. What investment options are kind of liquid or I don't know what the right term is, but to where you would be able to access that quickly. Both real estate and stocks can offer you that option. And with real estate, usually it would be in the form of a home equity line of credit, right? So most often you buy a house. And I always say to people too, their first priority, I mean, there are some caveats to this, depending where you live, if you live in New York City or something like that, where real estate is just so crazy expensive. But by and large, I say to people, their first investment should be their own number one. I think, and I think you should prioritize buying that over paying off your student loans or even paying off all your credit cards because 
so much benefit can come out of owning the house that it's worth looking at that seriously. But when you buy a house, usually you buy it, the you have to buy it like, depends how much down you put, but your average mortgage is 20% down, which means you're getting a loan for 80%. Well, you could probably go get a home equity line of credit on 10% more of that value. So say your house, you buy a house for $200,000, 20% down would be $40,000, right? And then you'd have a $160,000 loan. Well, then you can go get a home equity line of credit very likely for $20,000. So what that means is, is that it uses the home's equity as collateral for the loan. And then you have this revolving line of credit based on your home's equity that you can use when you need. You don't need to use it, but if you do need it, you're going to be paying probably a lower rate than you would be on a credit card. and that interest potentially would be tax deductible, whereas credit card interest would not be. So that's a way that you can have your money invested in real estate, that, but still also have access to the cash that you might need. Similarly, with stocks, you can get a basically a margin account, for lack of a better term. And usually you can get up to 50% of the value of your stock holdings in terms of a line of credit. So if you had, say, $50,000 of stocks in a particular brokerage firm, most firms do it, like Fidelity or whatever, they'll give you a line of credit for up to $25,000. Now, the trick with that is if your holdings go down in value because the stock values go down, your credit line capacity would go down. So if you had a $50,000 value of stocks and you had a $25,000 credit line based on that and you had all $25,000 borrowed, well, if your stock value went down, they would call you and say, hey, your credit line is only now $20,000 because your stock value went down to 40. So you owe us $5,000 like today, or we're going to liquidate some of your stock holdings it's called a margin call or something like that. You don't always want to max that out. That can't happen with a home equity line of credit. The most they can do is just turn your credit line, turn the revolving aspect off, convert it into a term loan and make you start making principal and interest payments over a 20 year period. They can't go liquidate your house. So doing that kind of lending through real estate is generally better and a little bit safer. But those are a couple of ways you can have your cash invested while still having access to money that you might need in an emergency. Now, with stocks, when the emergency comes, maybe your stocks are up and you just are like, I'm just going to sell them and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my winnings and I'll go pay for my emergency. Maybe they're down and you're like, I don't want to sell the stocks to solve my problem. So I'll borrow off the credit line and wait till they go back up in value. Or maybe you'll say, listen, I don't ever want to sell the stocks. I just want to keep them invested. So I'm going to borrow this money. I'm going to pay usually very reasonable interest because this kind of loan is secured by your stock. So the interest rates right now generally vary between as low as 4% up to say 8%, much better than a credit card. You can go that route. But even like, again, if, if you're younger in life or you have a lot of credit card debt, I would pay your credit card debt off before paying the credit line be, or before having the emergency fund because the credit card's probably costing you 15 to 20% annual interest. And just because you pay it off doesn't mean you can't use it still. You just have now available credit to use when that emergency comes. So definitely don't carry a credit card balance in lieu of having an emergency fund, in my opinion. Over the years, as because of my interest in personal finance, I've just done the math on all these things. And so I just have a kind of a shorthand of like, what's the best way to approach any given situation kind of mathematically, financially, mathematically, if you will. So 
that's a lot of what like I I'll share those kind of things on my website or with people like coach or whatever and kind of be like, you don't do that. Do it this way. Yeah, I've done the financial piece, Dave Ramsey, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and paid off all the credit card debt, car loan, all that stuff. Still have the house still. But other than that A house isn't debt, in my mm. opinion. I don't know why people say like I bought a house, now I'm just an <laughs> amount of debt. No, you're not. All you've done is put your savings into your home as equity. Instead of paying cash, entirely cash for the house, you've done that and taken a loan. But when you do the math on owning a home, you have to understand that if you didn't own the home, you'd be paying rent anyway. So the rent you would have paid is actually income to yourself as a landlord. And when you factor that in with tax savings and interest and everything, the math on owning a home always by and large, well, I shouldn't say always by and large, by and large outpaces the benefit of renting and investing whatever capital you had in the market. <laughs> and I do have that math on my website in a spreadsheet. You can go look ah. at it. If you think I'm wrong, you can tell me. Oh, mm. awesome. Yeah. Maybe after this, you can send me the direct link to that and I can put that in the show notes because I'd, I'd love to look at that. Yeah. I've never heard someone refer to a home loan as not debt before, but it, it makes sense, especially since the interest rate, typically speaking, at least here in the past few years, is significantly lower than a credit card or whatever else. Because with the amount percentage year after year that rent is going up, but if your your home loan stays at the three or five percent or whatever, yeah. yeah, it doesn't go up. So when you actually do the math for like 30 years of owning that home versus renting with regular rent increases and all that, the longer you're in the home, often the more compelling the overall value of the situation is because you're generally your housing payment doesn't go up. Your taxes and insurance will go up, but they won't go up as a total percentage higher than rent will. Right. But the other thing that happens is your home value increases, and then you can often borrow out of your home to go do good things, like start a business or something, or go buy more real estate. Borrowing out of your home to go buy your expensive car or your sea-doo or whatever, that's not good. And I was going to say, to your point about homes not being debt, I, it might be more acceptable to say, it's good debt versus bad debt, mm, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, if you borrow money to buy an asset that you can then sell for the same or more money and pay your debt off in very short order, you're technically not really in debt, in my mm. opinion. You're in debt if you went and you bought a whole bunch of expensive toys that you can only sell for pennies on the dollar, and you're going to be stuck carrying that debt whether you sell the asset or you don't. So mm -hmm. if you're buying appreciating assets using debt, it's a completely different situation. And some people say, like, I don't know, Robert Kiyosaki, who I like, and I like his books. He said in one of his books, your house isn't your biggest investment. It's your biggest expense. I don't know what he was talking about with that, because every house I've owned has been a market beating investment. It's been, thank God I bought that because it really paid off. I think what he really meant to say is housing is your biggest expense. And unless you're going to live with your parents forever or you happen to find your way into a rent controlled awesome apartment in Manhattan and you know, you live there for 30 years and you're just paying like grossly under market rent, very likely you're going to be paying market rate rent every year that you're renting housing. So when you buy your own house, I look at it this way. You're still a renter. You are just also the owner 
of the real estate that you are renting, right? Mm. So we're all renters all the time. We all need housing, whether we own the real estate or we don't. When you own the real estate, you're kind of like, wow, I mean, to me, owning your own house is like the best rental real estate you can get because you know the tenant really well. You know they're not going to complain all that much. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't need property management. They will take care of the place better than any other tenant will. And so the man, uh, when you take out all the kind of extra expenses of being your own tenant and not having property management and not having the comp people calling you and complaining, the math on the real estate investment side of that equation is actually really good. It's generally better than the math on your general rental real estate that you might go and buy and put a stranger in. But everybody will always tell you buying rental property is a good idea. So why in the world would Robert Kiyosaki ever insinuate that buying your own home would never be a good idea? I don't know. And even Grant Cardone, I watched a video where he basically tried to make the case using terrible paper napkin math <laughs> that owning your own home was not a good idea, that it was hmm. a bad idea. But then in the next breath, he said, but if you go buy a, a fourplex and live in one unit and rent out the rest, well, that's a really great idea. I don't understand. That's the same thing. It's just either one's a single family house and one's a fourplex. But what some people do is because it's their house, they buy more house than they can afford. They over renovate the house for what the neighborhood and neighborhood general appreciation and market capacity will pay them back for and things like that. They make sort of emotional decisions about the investment. So that's the thing you kind of have to avoid if it's your home. You still got to be smart. Like, well, if I'm going to do this renovation and put in like the most expensive tile in a bathroom, but I'm in like a mid-level neighborhood where no new buyer is going to be willing to reimburse me for that, that's a bad idea. So you got to think like a real estate investor when you're buying your first house. But the other benefit of owning your own home, in addition to all the things I mentioned, the greatest benefit is if you live there for two years, you get up to $250,000 of capital gains tax-free. And if you're married, up to $500,000 of capital gains tax-free when you sell the place. You don't get that when you have regular rental real estate. So when you factor that in, it's just like a home run usually. And I say to people, if they're adventurous and the live and flip is one of the best ways to make money in real estate, you buy a fixer upper, you live in it, you fix it up, or you at least act as the general contractor so that you're doing the renovations for less money. You live there for two or three years, you sell it, you make a profit, you pay no tax on the profit. Whereas if it was actual investment real estate, you would have to pay tax unless you did 1031 exchange. And then you go into a new house. That's better. Fix that up. Be there for three years. Sell that. Take those capital gains tax-free and go buy yet another house. That's kind of a, a way I call doing the live and flip. And it's like the most optimal, honestly, way to make money in real estate. Taking advantage of the tax benefits that are available to homeowners. It's interesting you mentioned that because I didn't even know that was really a thing, but that's something I did. We bought our first house in 07 and it was like super cheap. It was a brand new build. We did fully upgrade and everything, but it was super cheap back then. And we stayed in it for, I guess, seven years. So in 2014, we sold it and made a pretty good profit on it that we didn't have to pay taxes on. Though I'm kind of wishing we had stayed in it longer because now it's like even we would have made like two or three times more 
had we sat on it another few years, but whatever. And then we took that money. Well, actually, we used a lot of it to pay off credit card debt, but in a car loan. But now we're in a new house, also a new build that's slightly more expensive than the first one, only because, but it's actually a smaller house, but it's only because inflation, I guess, and yeah. whatever. But so that, and then we were thinking a certain point. So we've been in this house for like five years now, or a little more than that. So we're thinking like every five, to 10 years or something well you're saying every two to three but i guess in our case it's been yeah. five to ten it could just be any i mean really it's like one the thing is whenever you sell you want to buy something new in that market because if you if you have a big gap well you've missed out on a lot of potential market appreciation now if you sell don't rebuy and the market happens to go down and you can buy now at a lower market well amazing good for you but I've always, I've always found the real estate market tends to be at the top most of the time. It's just the way it is. You know, inevitably, we have setbacks, we have recessions, we have whatever. Obviously, we had the great financial crisis and all that. But what happens is, is people are in their houses and you generally don't have the cash to necessarily go buy. You, you have to be kind of like a new buyer at that time and sort of get lucky. But a lot of the time when you go looking for your house, when you can afford it, it is often at the top of the market. Now is no different. We'll see. You know, we thought home prices might come down a little bit, but through the end of this year, maybe into next year, we'll see. Interest rates went up, so that's going to be bring home prices down for sure, generally, but depends what market you're in. Some markets are just so in demand, like in Florida, that even with low interest rates, it's not pushing home prices down in premium areas because a lot of people coming here are retiring. They sold their expensive house. They had a lot of equity in up in New Jersey or wherever, and they just buy a house all cash. And when, when you have a lot of all cash buyers, interest rates don't really matter to price. Anyway, I feel like we've kind of ventured into the whole realm of real estate investing. I, don't, I haven't like started kind of from the beginning, but I'm just throwing all sorts of, I think, good thoughts and things to think about. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that, like real estate investing or rental properties or because one idea I had was, well, instead of selling the house, what if we rented it out while we got a different house? But that seems kind of like a pain. So if you're interested in making money, you're going to be signing up for some of a pain in the butt. There's no question about that. And if you, you know, if you think it's going to happen any other way, you're kidding yourself. So I look at real estate as a side hustle. It, it really is a little bit of, it's its own little micro business. I mean, businesses at the end of the day are income expense and hopefully net profit, right? And that net profit has to both well compensate you for your time spent and then hopefully give you a premium on top of that for being the investor or founder of the business. Real estate's just a business. It has income every month. It has expense. You hopefully have a net profit or positive cash flow. And then you also make money as the investor on the appreciation side. But it takes a little bit of work. You want if the, you do better in real estate if you manage it yourself, unless you get up to a certain scale of properties that you own. And it takes a lot of work. You got to answer the phone. I mean, either you got to organize, repair people or go over there and do some stuff for yourself. You got to find tenants when you have occupancy and all that. But you're making money for that at time. So I, I think it's a great side hustle because you both get revenue from it, but you also get the investment appreciation over time. Now, at the end of the day, real estate investments are 
the purpose of them is to build wealth and to make money. Unless I, I was joking with saying, unless you want to go sit in your car and look at your rental property all day long on Saturday, I mean, the, the main purpose of it is to make you money. So not every real estate investment makes you money. Bad ones don't make you money. They lose you money. Good ones make you money. So you always got to do the math and the financial tracking of your real estate or your business and make sure it's paying off and make sure it's worth your time because there are other ways to invest that also hopefully will produce wealth growth for you and they might not take as much time i've eventually kind of found or uh, come to look at real estate is i think you get a superior return for less risk ultimately real estate. But you don't always have to own the properties yourself. The Another next best thing, I think, is what's called real estate syndication. They're investing money in other people's real estate deals, and you just get your piece of the pie. Now, I would say start with your own house. See what you think about dealing with a house. And then if, you, if you're not that opposed to it, then buy some rentals and know that you're going to deal with similar things there. <laughs> you know I mean? One thing I've wondered about is if you still have a mortgage loan on a house, can you rent it out or do you need to have the house paid off to be able to rent it out? Oh, no, absolutely. You can rent it out. I mean, and and honestly, the whole, one of the great producers of value in real estate investing over other things is something called leverage. And leverage basically is a fancy financial term for the fact that you have a loan out on the asset that you're using to make money. So leverage basically works like this. So if you buy a $100,000 house with all cash and it appreciates 5% in a year, at the end of the year, your house is going to be worth $105,000. Now, we're not factoring in closing costs if you sold it. So you got to factor that in too if you do real math, but just basically. So you have made 5%. So if you, you put 100000 in, you bought it, it's worth one hundred five. You made 5% on your money. Well, if you buy the house with a loan, and you put 20% down, all you have risked is $20,000, right? If the house appreciates 5% in a year and is worth $105,000, now you've made $5,000 against your 20 or 25% return versus if you put the 100 grand in, you only made 5% return on your capital at risk. So in order to, you make the most money with real estate when you use leverage because you are putting less of your investable capital at risk, right? And so, and you're getting a higher return on it, even though you're having to pay interest and various things. So yeah, the whole real estate investing world would not work if you couldn't rent the places out while having, when you, you know, go do a property, you do the math on it, you go, okay, I'm going to have this loan, I'm going to be paying this rate, so I'm going to be paying this in interest, I'm going to pay this as insurance, these are going to be my expenses. This is going to be my rent. Is that going to cover all of the costs of this house and then leave me with a profit at the end of the month or not? Obviously, you want the answer to be yes. Sometimes people are happy with no, it's going to cost me a little, it's going to be negative cash flow every month, but I think I'm betting on appreciation. I don't do that particularly, but I'm more conservative. But, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can definitely uh, rent it out when you have a loan. And the other thing to know about the capital gains thing is, at least as of right now, last I employed this, is that you have to have lived in the house for two of the last five years to get the free capital gains, which means you can buy the house, live in it for two years, rent it out for two and a half years, 
sell it right before the five-year mark and get the free capital gains. And so you could do like your live and flip thing where you buy a house, then you move, you rent it out for a little while, or maybe capture more appreciation with it, and then sell it right before the five-year mark and still get the free capital gains. And you might have captured more appreciation, maybe some positive cash flow or whatever. That's actually think, makes me think about another point. When you buy a house for the first time, a lot of people are like, you know, dream house. I want everything on my list, blah, 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 blah. One thing you have to think about is, is this a good investment from the point of view of just being an investment? Meaning like if I had to leave it and rent it out, would I be renting it out for more than the expenses it's costing me? And a lot of times, like in the more premium neighborhood, the rent doesn't always kind of cover the expenses of the mortgage and the taxes and whatever, because people kind of go into those neighborhoods for different reasons, more emotional reasons. So I think one of the best strategies, especially for be younger people, is you know, there are companies out there called turnkey real estate investment companies, and they, they basically fix up houses, they buy cheap houses, fix them up, put tenants in them, and then they sell them to investors, right? So investors can get cash flow on their investable money. Well, that sale process is completely numbers-based, meaning the, the price you pay for the house is going to be contingent on how much rent it can get, right? So usually on a purchase price basis, you're getting a little bit of a better deal. Now, you might not be in the best neighborhood. It might be a B neighborhood. You can even probably get like an A minus potentially. The numbers for the house are going to relatively work okay if you had to like leave it either because you wanted to move on to a better house or even, I don't know, you lost your job. You couldn't pay the mortgage anymore. You don't want to foreclose, so you're going to rent it and who knows what. Those houses are priced right to fit the bill of that. And then oftentimes you can then sell them in the retail market after you want to move out where you can there, you can fetch a higher price because it's more of an emotional buy for a retail or when I say retail, I mean someone who is going to buy it and live in it and make it their home home. So I did that a couple of times with some uh, turnkey stuff I bought. And I was just like surprised what a price premium I got even just a few years later. That's all under the caveat that we've been in a real estate bull market for a long time. Now, I've been a benef lucky beneficiary of that, but I think it still uh, showed me that it's a strategy worth investigating if you want to buy your first house, but you want to be savvy about it and make it an investment as well. Let's say you buy a house and you have a mortgage load on it and then you want to rent it out. But then to get into another house to actually live in and get a loan on it, can you have more than one loan at a time? Yes, you can have up to 10 conventional loans at a time. When I say conventional, these would be loans that you'd get the better rates on that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or whatever it is called would, would buy them and, and, and secure them. Once you go over 10, they can only be on properties that are single family or up to four units. Some banks will only lend to you with a max of four loans. So to get up to 10 conventional loans, you kind of got to go to like some smaller lenders. Beyond that, you would have to get commercial lending, which is basically like lenders that look at you as a business, you know, and business lending is not as favorable on the interest rate front and the prepayment penalty front and all that kind of stuff. You need the loans in order to operate your business and that's just the way it is. So, so yeah. And a lot of people also ask like, well, 
isn't it going to be harder and harder for me to get more loans because I just keep taking on more and more debt, but my income isn't necessarily going up. But when you qualify for a second, they look at your property that you're going to rent. They look at the financials on that. So if you have a lease in place, that's bankable money as far as a lender's concerned when they're giving you a pre-approval. If you're in the first year of the lease and you haven't actually recorded any income or expense and net result on a tax return, usually they'll allow you to add 75% of your lease amount to your income for qualifying, right? So, but once you have a whole year and you've had the house and you stamp it on a tax return, you, you want to make sure that you don't over depreciate and over expense. So your property is a loss, but if your property has like a, a net gain before depreciation, you actually have more income. They're, they're looking at you as more income than just your job because your real estate is cash flow positive. So they go, oh, well, they have the job and they also have the income from their rental real estate. So they're an even better candidate. And then they, you said, they say, okay, you're going to buy this property. How much can you rent it for? You're like, okay, I think I can rent it for $1,000 a month. Well, for that property, they'll give you the credit of about 75% of that income if you have a lease in place. So when you go buying investment property, if you buy a property that's already leased, you can take that lease from the person you're buying it from, show it to your bank and say, listen, I already got a, I got a lease in place. It's got a tenant. There's revenue that's going to be associated to me as soon as I close. They'll take up to 75% towards your income and then you, know, you can estimate expenses from there. So that's kind of how you can grow your real estate portfolio and take on more loans because the bank says, listen, it's, it's not like I'm lending you money to go on vacation. I'm lending you money to go buy an asset that is very likely going to appreciate and worth more next year than it is today. And if you mess up and you don't pay, I can foreclose, take the asset back, sell it and recoup my losses. And they'll usually, once you get into rental real estate, the best you can do is 20% down. Because they want a 20% buffer where it says, if you screw up in the next year or two, and we're going to foreclose and sell it. Well, you're going to lose your down payment and we have a 20% buffer to make ourselves whole, even if we can't sell the property for full value or, and we also going to have expenses to do the foreclosure and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's why you got to put a down payment on. They want you to have some skin in the game. They look at it as a money-making venture. They look at it as a business and banks are in the business to lend money. That's how they make money. So they need to lend money. They just want to lend it to under favorable conditions. Earlier, you had mentioned that you don't recommend, at least if you have one property, to have a property management company and handle it all yourself. I guess what would the reason be for that? It's mainly a cost thing. And when I say I don't recommend it, I, I used to live in California and buying rental property there was not really a good option in my opinion uh, because it was expensive and the tenant laws are way too favorable. The rental laws are way too favorable for tenants. So I went out of state, in which case I needed to have property management. So when I bought those places, I had to factor in the extra cost of property management which means you got to get the house for a better deal, whatever. So if you can buy in your area and manage yourself, you just avoid the cost of the management. But it's not just the manager fee. The management fees are usually kind of like 8 to 10%, which is something. You know, it's enough to have to be counted. 
but you you have more fees in that usually you know your your interests and the property manager's interests are not exactly aligned. They're in business to make money, and they're making money off of you <laughs> as their customers. So when it come every time there's a vacancy, they're going to charge you a month rent in addition to the management fee to rent it out. Every time there's a repair, a lot of times property management companies is in-house repair and it's a money-making venture for them and you don't always get the best deal from them. If they don't have in-house repair, they're going to go get estimates to get it fixed and then they're going to tack a markup on the estimates. And in addition to that, I always I feel like a potentially tenants will be more willing to complain if they're calling a third party who doesn't really care how much the repair is going to cost than if they have to call the owner themselves. They might go try to pull the hair out of the drain (laughs) before we call a plumber just because the owner might come over and try to pull the hair out of the drain himself and then see that you have a dog there that your lease doesn't allow for, right? So the flip side of that is that if they don't ever want you to come by, you know, and they try to avoid it, they might not tell you about repairs that need to be done. So there's a positive and a negative to, to that too. But I don't know. I feel like when also when you find the tenant yourself, you're more critical of getting a good tenant and you meet them yourself and you get a feel for them. I just found the properties that I managed have overall had less problems, have less total expense as a percentage of the income. And I've had tenants stay longer. So there's just those are like the hidden extra costs of working with property managers. Yeah, that makes sense. But well, sometimes it's just it's needed and it's like the only way you can do the deal. And if as long as the math works and you see a path to make a good profit, now there's nothing wrong with property management. It's, it's there for a reason. It also does make owning real estate more passive. So that's mm-hmm. the greatest benefit of it. When you're your own manager, you have to pick up the phone and you have to do stuff. And that can be annoying where having a property manager is one of the more passive ways to have real estate. The most passive is probably doing real estate syndication where you do nothing except write a check and then cross your fingers that the money promised you you to you will actually come in. I feel like we've covered quite a bit. Yeah. Ooh, and- <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you wanted to be sure you touched on? As I mentioned, I have these three pillars on my website. I know you could read my website and learn everything. Um, but of course, I have some courses in each of the pillars that take the info, distill it down and deliver it to you in a more efficient way. So I have a course in each pillar. One, like in the personal finance pillar, which is where you would start, uh, it's called the Financial Independence Roadmap, and it's all about learning about tracking your finances, budgeting, and making a plan that you're going to try to stick to and giving yourself a destination, a goal, hence the roadmap. Then I have a course that's focused on real estate investing, where I explain to you how you make money in real estate and how you track, well, one, both do pre-planning before you buy something and make something make sure something is a worthwhile investment and then also how you analyze that investment after you own it and make sure it's making you money so i have a little course in there and then the third course is more entrepreneurial driven and it's about incorporating yourself to um, get the benefits of being a business owner and also liability protection and things like that so if you go to my website playlouder.com there's a tab called courses and you can find all those there And to me, they're each a few hundred bucks, but it's just like the quickest, most direct way to like get the info without having to fish through like a bunch of random articles and sort of piece it together yourself. And I'll have show notes with direct links to everything at 
thesarahstjohn.com forward slash play louder. And again, you can check out the blog directly at playlouder.com. Well, awesome. I really appreciate your time today and all the information. Absolutely, Sarah. It was was great being on. Thanks for having me. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack. Connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.